Our reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 26, as you can see on the screen, and you'll find that on page 1060 in the Church Bibles. And before I read, just let us pray that the Lord may speak to us really clearly through his word this evening. Amen. So Luke 23, verse 26. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you much, Phil, for reading. Do uh, please keep that passage uh, open. We're back in Luke's uh, account of Jesus as he heads towards the cross. And as Ed reminded us, I think, last time, uh, this account of Luke is written that we might have certainty about all of uh, Scripture's great claims uh, about Jesus and his mission, showing that he really is the fulfillment of God's great promises for the world. And for Luke, that mission, I think, crystallizes uh, in this idea of salvation. Uh, In Jesus' own words, he has come as the Son of Man, Um, the king over all, but come not to deliver final judgment uh, on rebel humanity, but to seek and to save the lost. And we see uh, Jesus uh, fulfilling that uh, mission as he he brings hope and and, uh, forgiveness and freedom for those uh, described in his gospel as poor. 
And by that, Luke doesn't primarily mean the economically poor, uh, but those who are, I think, considered beyond the pale, uh, beyond God's reach even. Uh, Traitors and tax collectors, uh, men and women of questionable uh, background, the ethnically impure, Samaritans, the the physically excluded, uh, lepers. And now as we we come to this uh, great moment where that salvation is won, Luke continues to, to give us the most expansive panorama of any of the gospel writers, showing uh, just a wide range of reactions to Jesus and his mission, but also showing Jesus fulfilling his mission and seeking and saving uh, the lost. Well, in our passage tonight, we'll see uh, some uh, rejecting that salvation and that saviour, uh, refusing uh, to recognise him, uh, including those who should have had eyes to see him, but wonderfully, too, we'll see others embracing Jesus. Uh, who many would have written off and discovering that certainly uh, uh, or discovering that certainty that Luke wants his readers to know and these are amazing verses we not only uh, see I think how salvation is won we also in, in the clearest way see how it is to be received and my prayer is tonight that we might uh, see the saviour and the salvation he brings and know for sure that we have received it and Jesus Let's pray to that end as we look at these great words uh, together. Father, thank you so much for this part of your word that gets to the very heart of who Jesus is, the heart of his mission. Thank you for that salvation that is being won at the cross. And Father, I pray that even as we look at it and explore it uh, together, we might know for certain that we have received that wonderful gift and are able to live in the light of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you notice, our passage begins with Jesus being led led away from that kangaroo uh, court presided over by Pilate. And we know from other gospel accounts that between trial and execution, uh, Jesus endured a severe uh, beating. And historians tell us it wasn't uncommon for some to die uh, in their beatings. Well, recognising Jesus' weakened state, the soldiers, verse 26, uh, seize a man called uh, Simon, who was heading into the city and forced him to carry the cross for Jesus. Uh, Cyrene was a largely Greek city, which is now in uh, modern Libya, but it also included a small Jewish community too. Uh, if Simon was in Jerusalem for Passover, uh, as he's dragged, I think, unexpectedly, perhaps even unwillingly, into the unfolding events, He now finds himself close up and personal uh, with the lamb. The celebration of the Passover foreshadowed, didn't it, this very event. The one to be sacrificed, the one who will bear God's judgment for sin and win freedom for his people. We might come back to Simon before we're done if we have time, but there's one detail I think that Luke wants us to notice. Something very poignant, isn't there, about this opening scene. Jesus heads towards Calvary where he will die for sinners. And and Luke just very briefly zooms in to show us a man carrying the cross behind Jesus. It's a picture Jesus himself painted back in Luke chapter 9 that describes what true discipleship looks like. Remember Jesus' words? And Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. 
whatever loses their life for me will save it. Jesus was making very clear, wasn't he, that following him would be, would be costly. Uh, whether that meant physical death or not, certainly it did for most of Jesus' first disciples. It will mean for us at least the death of self-rule to going our own way. Here in this opening scene, we have that picture, I think, of discipleship very vividly fleshed out. Well, this evening, as like Simon, we get up close and personal with Jesus and the cross. I hope we are under no illusions about what discipleship uh, means and will cost. But I hope, too, we'll see uh, that it doesn't result in ultimate loss, but salvation. So that we're encouraged to, to follow Jesus with greater commitment and renewed confidence. I think there are three things I want us to see tonight as we get up close and personal with Jesus and the cross. And here's the first thing that's very clear, I think. The cross is not a tragedy, it is necessary. A few years ago, I remember talking, I think it was around Easter time, with a woman locally uh, who described Jesus' death as a terrible waste. How could they have done something uh, so evil to someone so good? Uh, she pondered, what a, what a horrible thing, what a tragedy. And she physically shuddered as she spoke of Jesus' death. There's no doubt that she was visibly moved by the cross. Verse 27 shows, doesn't it, the executions were public affairs, often in Jesus' day, often drawing large crowds, especially if the victim was well known as Jesus would have been. And Jesus now turns his focus on a group of, of women lining the way to Calvary who are clearly deeply moved, aren't they, by the sight of a man in his prime being led away to crucifixion. Indeed, they're devastated, weeping and wailing over the tragedy before their eyes unfolding. Given what's about to follow, you might have imagined Jesus would have been thankful, even comforted by the sadness and sympathy of these women, those who were moved rather than mocking. But Jesus' response to their outpouring of grief is very striking, even, I'd say, devastating. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. As Jesus heads towards that place of judgment and execution, he says, in effect, that if they could truly understand what was happening, they would be weeping for themselves and not for him. And immediately with these women, on his own day of judgment, he goes on to speak of another day of judgment, a day so awful and calamitous it would turn their world upside down. A day so terrible that in it, even the great blessing of childbirth and motherhood would be seen not as a blessing, but a curse. To these women of Jerusalem belonged to a, a city that was heading towards disaster. A day so terrible that you would think it would be better not to have been born than to have experienced it. I guess for those hearing Jesus, uh, these words would have been deeply shocking. They were daughters of Jerusalem, the city of God. But tragically it was, wasn't it, the city that had rejected their king. They should have been the first to recognize him. Uh, they were uniquely placed and privileged to do so, but now they reject their savouring king, and Jesus warns them, as he did just a couple of chapters earlier, of the fall of the city. Uh, and sure enough, in AD uh, 70, 
in response to a political uprising, the city was overthrown. It was razed to the ground. And by all accounts, it was a day of unimaginable upheaval and calamity, one that many didn't see coming. But just as he did in, in Luke 21, Jesus uses images and pictures that I think point beyond AD 70 to something of cosmic significance, the day when Jesus comes as the king, arriving on the clouds with power and glory. Uh, a day of uh, tragedy when human rebellion will be exposed and judged. Uh, a day when to reject your saviour or king will result in weeping and wailing. That will exceed even the weeping and wailing over a judged and condemned city. Revelation 6 speaks of that day as a world uh, united in opposition against Jesus. Kings, princes, generals, uh, and everyone else uh, des desperately runs for cover to hide uh, from the face of the king. To escape what Apostle John calls the wrath of the Lamb. Well, many are, aren't they, moved by the death of Jesus, like that woman, moved by what seems like a tragic waste. A terrible miscarriage of justice, even. But Jesus says, in effect, don't weep over my death. Rather, weep for your sin and hardness of heart and the judgment that right should, rightly should fall. Great uh, uh, preacher Spurgeon put it like this. You need not weep over the crucifixion, but weep over your transgression, for your sins nailed the Redeemer to that accursed tree. To weep over a dying saviour is to lament the remedy. It were wiser to bewail the disease. I think that's why the cross is not a tragedy, but necessary. See, we're implicated, aren't we, in this death. We have rejected our king. And the reality is we desperately need that very death as our remedy, as our only hope. Just as in the events of the Passover, uh, we need the lamb to die to become that object of the judgment we deserve uh, if we are to escape that final day when those startling words of Jesus to those women become an inescapable reality. The cross is not a tragedy, it's a, it's a necessity. And we should weep. Uh, not first and foremost even over the sufferings of Jesus, but over uh, the reality that it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished uh, for me. Notice too, uh, the cross is not failure, but uh, fulfillment. So as Luke continues to explore the events of, of the cross uh, through the lens of those reacting to it, the scene now moves, doesn't it, to uh, the place of execution, known as the place of the skull, uh, Golgotha in Aramaic and Calvary, uh, in Latin. It might have been that way described because of the rock formations, we don't know, but it doesn't have deep and dark overtones. It is, of course, the place of death. And throughout these uh, next verses, one of the most uh, striking uh, themes Luke is very keen to underline is this theme of fulfillment. See, as Jesus is led to this place of execution, Luke wants us not only to see that the cross is necessary, he wants us to see that it fulfills God's plans and purposes. 
And if you had your antenna up, uh, there's a whole number of different Old Testament connections here that indeed reveal that God's plans and purposes are unfolding before our eyes. So Luke first draws our attention to the the two criminals who are to be executed uh, along with Jesus. And just a chapter before, Jesus spoke of uh, to his disciples of being numbered among the transgressors, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy uh, from Isaiah 53 that speaks of God's innocent servant suffering not for his sins, but also for the sins of others. And now Jesus is just lumped together with these lawbreakers, these criminals, treated as the guilty, as if he were just like them. And notice too at the end of verse 33 how Luke describes how they were all lined up in a row with Jesus in the middle. Again, criminal to left, criminal to right. I guess rubbing in how this prophecy from Isaiah is uh, being crossed off. Showing us how the one being led to his death is in fact the willingly leading the charge to complete God's plan. The plan that would save sinners. And I think Isaiah 53 is very loudly ringing uh, in these verses. Striking, isn't it, that Luke, who's a, a doctor, spends so little time on the physicality of what Jesus experiences. It's very silent, isn't he, about that. Um, and I think with Isaiah 53 in our minds, Luke is drawing us to see this chapter uh, as a one of, of deeper suffering that is unique uh, to Jesus in this scene. Not the, the dreadful physical agony of that nail, of the nails that bore Jesus' weight, but the unimaginable weight of God's judgment that Jesus carries that should have fallen on sinful humanity, on us, the guilty. So here is the, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 standing uh, in the place of sinners, suffering as our substitute. Now, a picture we saw very vividly fleshed out this morning in the story of a Barabbas. And this is where I think we need to see, this is where it gets very personal, doesn't it? This is God's plan, not only to save Barabbas or sinners in general, but to save us, to save me. And Isaiah 53 does make that point very clearly. Yes, it was the Lord's will, says Isaiah, to crush him and cause him to suffer. Why? He tells us, surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him stricken by God, uh, afflicted, punished, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Well, in that prophecy of Isaiah, as God's uh, suffering servant bears the sins of many, it also speaks of him making intercession for the transgressors. And again, we find that scripture fulfilled, don't we, in a remarkable way. Look down at uh, verse 33. They crucified him, Luke states, and the first words uttered by Jesus from the cross are words of forgiveness for his very executioners. Well, the soldiers seem, don't they, completely unaware of the identity of the one they're killing. Uh, Even though in verse 38, there's a sign placed above Jesus that proclaims who he is for all to see, the king of the Jews. 
perhaps even as they oversaw proceedings, which they did, I'm sure, very efficiently. It must have seemed inconceivable that this man could be a king, or a king that held any kind of power, even as his life ebbed away. But as they kill the Messiah, the Son of God, unaware of what they're doing, Jesus knows the gravity of their crime and remarkably prays for their forgiveness. Not God, get them back. Father, forgive. And in that very shocking prayer, we see something of the heart of Jesus for sinners. Well, before the chapter ends, we will meet uh, a soldier who provides remarkable proof that Jesus' prayer was answered. But it's not only Isaiah 53 that provides a backdrop uh, to this scene that uh, Luke records for us. Uh, Prophetic words from Psalm 22 also show how closely God's script is being followed and fulfilled. Uh, In that psalm, Psalm 22, David records how God's king is surrounded by those uh, who mock and despise. Those who cruelly rejoice in God's apparent reluctance to save his servant. And if you know that psalm, you'll know too how it speaks of bones dislocated, hands and feet being pierced, even though it would be several centuries before crucifixion would be used as a means of execution. And no less remarkably, it speaks of enemies casting lots uh, for the victim's garments. Psalm 69, another psalm of David, will speak prophetically of the scene as um, the king's raging thirst is felt and how the enemies respond by offering him vinegar to drink. And as we see this fulfillment, what it means is as we hear those mocking voices taunting Jesus, uh, their verdict is that failure to save himself invalidates his claims to be God's king. But in the suffering of Jesus, we don't see failure, we see fulfillment. Perhaps most strikingly, the great taunt of the mockers is there, isn't it? He saved others, but he cannot save himself. In our ears, that becomes one of the greatest truths of this passage, isn't it? In order to fulfill his mission to save sinners, in order to save me, he couldn't save himself. Of course, no nails could ultimately hold Jesus to the cross, but... We discover that it was his deep and unwavering love that bound him to the cross. As the old hymn puts it, was it the nails, O Saviour, that bound you to the tree? It was your everlasting love, your love for me, for me. Well, for those watching, Jesus' humiliating agony and death in view uh, is the death of all Jesus' royal claims. But actually for us, For those who have eyes to see, Jesus never looks more glorious, does he? Or more kingly. Indeed, those words above Jesus that uh, incited mockery and derision reveal a truth that causes us to fall before Jesus in worship and wonder. Well, Luke does want us to be certain of the one who hangs on the tree. To know he is a king of God's eternal kingdom. I think there's one more individual that Jesus homes in on in this passage uh, at the scene of the place of the skull that dramatically, I think, reveals who this kingdom is for and how anyone can be certain and confident of their place in that kingdom. Cross not for some, but for all. Let me read again from verse 39. 
Uh, one of the criminals who hung there he hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, one of the criminals uh, joins in with the other mockers. He might be affixed to the cross, but he, with his, his dying breath, hurls, doesn't he, insults at Jesus. So you're the Messiah, save yourself, save us. But the other criminal's response is very different, isn't it? It seems somehow in those terrible hours together with Jesus, uh, the man crucified between them, uh, he has been left with a deep impression about who Jesus is. Maybe it was Jesus' silence, uh, his refusal to, to retaliate amidst the relentless taunting and mocking. Maybe he caught the, the prayer of Jesus for his executions, Father, forgive them. Perhaps it was even the words of his taunters, he saved others, that opened his mind to something that others seemed to ignore at that scene. Or something doesn't open his eyes. And so rather than siding with the others, in his final moments he chooses, doesn't he, to side with Jesus. And in the briefest of exchanges, not only do we have, only do we discover that, that no one is beyond God's reach, beyond the salvation that Jesus is dying here to win, then we also discover how that salvation is received and enjoyed. Well, look at verse uh, 40. That second criminal knows he stands convicted that he's in the wrong. And his words to his fellow convict reveal that uh, he knows even beyond the experience of human judgment and justice, he faces the reality of a God he's ignored and rejected. And there's no uh, self-justification, no excuses, just an acknowledgement of the truth. He admits he's getting punished, and that punishment is the punishment he deserves. Well, if he is real about himself, he also acknowledges the truth, doesn't he, about Jesus? We are rightly paying for our wrongdoing, but this man, you curse, has done nothing wrong. Or maybe it was the transparent goodness and innocence of Jesus that served to, to deepen this criminal's awareness of his own guilt. Jesus does that, doesn't he, very often. The way we try and compare ourselves to others in self-justification is exposed, isn't it, with the muck and darkness of our lives as we get a glimpse of Jesus' goodness and purity and beauty. But that's not all this dying man sees. Jesus' innocent, innocence versus his guilt. Listen again to this man's astonishing request. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, to some it is a request that makes no sense. You don't go up to someone standing before the firing squad, do you, and ask them to help you when it's over. But this man does just that. Because he realizes, he recognizes that Jesus is the king, God's king, and is about to come into his kingdom. And he knows that only this king can bring him into that kingdom. 
And so this desperate, guilty man throws himself, doesn't he, on the mercy and the grace of Jesus. Jesus, uh, literally, saviour, remember me. All he can do is ask, isn't it? Uh, He can't do anything else. He can't offer Jesus anything, a, a life devoted in service, a life of religious observance, any kind of payback. He can offer nothing except a request. All he can do is ask. I just listen to Jesus' words in response, wonderful words of assurance and grace. As Jesus gasps for breath, he could have simply said, okay, sure. That would have been enough, I guess. But notice the way Jesus responds. Verse 42, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Do you see how every word is designed to give this desperate and unworthy man confidence that his request has indeed been heard. And to give all who cry out to Jesus confidence that Jesus stands ready and willing to receive us. Truly, says Jesus, there's no ambiguity or doubt about what I'm about to declare. Truly, I say to you, I say, These are the words, aren't they, of the trustworthy promise maker who fulfills every promise. Today, it's an immediate promise. Uh, For this dying man, literally today, he will be in paradise. It's personal, you, he says, uh, you will, certain. It's a relational promise, you will be with me. And it is a joyful promise, you will be with me in paradise. A promise not only of a restored relationship, but also a restored world. Well, perhaps you're here this evening and listening, perhaps online, and we've never done anything this criminal's done, and maybe never cried out for God's grace either. Perhaps you've not seen your need as this man does. Or maybe you think you need to prove your worthiness in some way before you can ask. Or maybe you think that in some way you are beyond the reach of Jesus and his forgiveness. But here in this encounter we discover that all the work, all the effort, all the willingness and worthiness is not found in us. But in a saviour whose reach is long. Long enough for this man. And so long enough for me too. Perhaps you have cried out for uh, for mercy. uh, Knowing your need but doubting, but maybe lacking assurance that you've been welcomed and received. Well, I think Luke records this very story, this encounter, so that uh, we might be certain, we might be confident that Jesus receives all who call out to him. Indeed, he's no reluctant saver, is he? As we see the lengths to which he goes to save and the lengths to which he goes to reassure those who call out uh, for mercy. Don't we, don't we just learn, yearn to, to live in this assurance that Jesus' words offer us? It didn't take away the immediate pain, did it, for this criminal, uh, but I believe it transformed it. And Jesus wants us to know that we are forgiven, that we are received, that we're welcomed. So that it might even be this case, it'd be the case that this week um, that certainty might transform Perhaps the pain of rejection 
being the only Christian in the classroom or in the office. It, it might transform that pain and anxiety that comes from physical suffering and anxiety that comes with it. Perhaps it will transform that moment of death for us as we pass uh, through that moment and experience uh, that last great enemy truly I tell you today you will be with me in paradise so the cross is not a tragedy it's necessary, it's not a failure a glorious fulfilment and it's not for some, it's for for me, it's for all Well, I wonder if Simon, who carried the cross for Jesus, discovered that Jesus ultimately bore the cross for him. I wonder if Simon did take up his cross and follow the crucified saviour. I wonder if he saw in the squalor and the evil and the darkness of that scene the glory of Jesus and the glory of the cross. Do you know, I think he did. I think there's evidence that he did. You can ask me about that afterwards if you want to over coffee. Well, my prayer is that as we head into Easter, we would have many opportunities to, to wonder at the cross and to live ever more in its glorious uh, reality. Let's pray that happens even over these coming days and today. Father, we thank you for this amazing passage. Even as we explore these different reactions to what goes on, those who are torn by the sadness and the, the tragedy unfolding but yet missed the significance of what took place. Those who mocked and thought that Jesus' suffering discredited his claims. We thank you, Lord, for that, that criminal who saw the truth, saw the reality of who Jesus is and was uh, old and audacious enough to plead and ask for mercy and grace and uh, thank you for those words of reassurance lord may we know those words ringing in our ears this week as we've cried out uh, for that same mercy and may we live those lives of bold confidence and assurance even when it's costly to take up our cross uh, in a small way and to, to follow jesus to help us and encourage us even through this passage we pray for jesus sake amen